Amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 9 through 11 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And as you're turning there, I just want to say how grateful I am uh, for each of you for being here today and what a joy it is get to preach the word uh, to the Lord's people every Lord's Day. I, I just, I don't feel like I get overwhelmed by that enough. What a joy and what a privilege it is. So thank you, thank you all for this great privilege. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. If you don't have a Bible, you can open up to 614, I mean, I'm sorry, that's wrong, 1314 in the Pew Bible. There in front of you, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to you. Beginning verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray together. God, I pray that today you would open our hearts and minds to see the beauty of conversion. And God, if there's anyone here in this room who doesn't know you, I pray that this truth would impact their hearts and so that they might repent and believe the gospel today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of America's most influential theologians. One of America's most influential theologians said this. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are. And she said, because he made you perfect, babe. So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far. Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Now, some of you may recognize this influential theologian as Lady Gaga. And while there's a sense in which that's tongue-in-cheek to mention that, it is literally true. In fact, you could go Google right now, Lady Gaga Theologian, and find multiple op-eds and think pieces that are saying, because Lady Gaga does claim to be a Christian woman, that are saying that the kind of theology that Lady Gaga presents, and especially in this song, Born This Way, is the kind of theology that the church desperately needs. You go find that right now articles to that end and this is exactly what the world around us 
teaches, not just Lady Gaga and her followers, the little monsters that kind of follow her and listen to her, but also just all around us. We're told to love ourselves just the way we are, that there's no need to change. Almost from birth, we're told we're on the right track, baby. We were born this way. However, our Lord, Jesus Christ, what did he say to Nicodemus? You must be born again. You must be born again. There are people who argue that the Christian doctrine of conversion, this very idea that we must be born again, there are people who argue that it is hateful and harmful. I want to tell you this morning that I'm an unapologetic conversionist. I believe people need to be converted. I I believe people need to be saved. Left to our own devices, we are moving irrevocably toward damnation and toward self-harm through our sin. The truth remains that we need to be changed. We need God's help. We need to be converted. You must be born again. We're beginning a new series this morning. uh, And the series is called Ordinary Glory. Ordinary Glory. And that sounds like a contradiction in terms, I suppose. But I I really want to emphasize to you today and then nine weeks following. So ten weeks total and... There'll, there'll be some breaks in there and, and some things like that. But over the next ten times I preach to you, let's put it like that, my hope and my prayer is to really be able to emphasize to us these basic things that God uses in an extraordinary way. That the ordinary things that so often we become complacent about as Christians, that we take for granted. It, it's a sad thing to say, but we oftentimes as Christians take conversion for granted. Forget the glories of what it means to be saved by God's grace. But I want to show you and demonstrate to you these ordinary means of God's grace, these common means of God's grace. And I want to show you the way that God uses them in the life of of the church. And I want us all to be reminded here at First Baptist Church of Gadsden, this is what we are staking our church on. I think you all know where I am on lots of different things by now. Seven years here in July. I think you guys know that I want to use every tool and every gift that God's given us in a way short of sin to try to reach people for Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's not our creativity, it's not our abilities, it's not our efforts that will do the work. Now, in so many ways, God uses those things. We we have no question about that. We're not to sit around here and just wait on God to work. We're to go out. By God's grace and for His glory and to try hard and to work hard. But at the same time, we recognize that it's God who must do the work. And we can sit around and try to come up with all kinds of different ways and ideas to reach the world for Christ. But I would argue God has already given us ordinary means by which we do these things. It's the simple stuff we do every week. And so this week, I want to show you this morning three truths about conversion. Three truths about the the doctrine that's really the bedrock of the lived Christian life, and that's the doctrine of conversion. This is, this is for me, in so many ways, a line in the sand. 
a line in the sand as to what is true Christianity and what is not so true Christianity. An authentic view of conversion in so many ways can often demarcate who genuinely believes the Bible's true and who really doesn't believe the Bible's true. I I will not go door-to-door evangelizing with someone who doesn't believe in conversion. We we just don't see eye-to-eye on the most fundamental thing about what every person needs to know You must be born again. Three truths this morning about conversion from this beautiful passage, these beautiful three verses of Scripture. Here's the first point this morning. God takes sin seriously. That might be an understatement. God takes sin seriously. What does the Bible teach here? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 9. Do not be, and it's an interesting word here, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is once again furthering this this line that the Lord began when he began speaking to Nicodemus. Paul's making this clear once more that the kingdom of the world is not the kingdom of God. That there must be a marked change in leadership between what we have now and what will be when the kingdom of God comes. The Bible makes so plain that it's not The Lord Jesus Christ initially, it seems, who is the, quote, ruler of this world. Jesus, in fact, says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, that's not to say that this whole world doesn't belong to Christ, but it is to recognize that at the fall, Satan became the ruler of this world. That that leadership that we had been given in the world as human beings was forfeited over to the snake. The Bible calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. Paul talks about rulers and authorities and powers and principalities that have rulership and leadership in the world today. And I think that's a reference to Satan and and his followers. And so we recognize then that the kingdom of the world is not the kingdom of God. And that the nature into which we are born will not inherit the kingdom of God. The nature which we have at birth, that which we inherit from Adam and Eve, that nature, not only is it the image of God that we inherit, but we also inherit a sin nature, unrighteousness by our very nature. We are born with a propensity to sin, but also, I, I would argue, we are born guilty our very nature and as soon as we're able we sin in earnest and some of you have been grandparents for a while and you've forgotten that truth (laughs) you don't believe your grandchildren can sin but the parents in the room know better see it happened so quickly the unrighteous the Bible says will not inherit kingdom of God and here's the reality that we all must face nobody is righteous no not 
one. We are all caught up in our sin. We are all sinners by nature. We are all guilty before God. And that's one thing to think. I hear people say that all the time. I I hear people who are out-and-out pagans are willing to concede a point like that. Well, to be human is to err, you know. Nobody's perfect. You hear that all the time. And so we must then go beyond just that we're all sinners. That It would have been wrong, I think, of the Bible. I think it would have been unkind of God not to give us some more specifics here. Now, a lot of people think it's unkind of God to give specifics, right? But I want to know exactly what I'm dealing with. I want to know exactly what's right, and I want to know exactly what's wrong. And God makes that really clear. Now, we need more than that, right? God gave his people exactly what was right and exactly what was wrong, and we see how well that worked out. We need more than that, but it's good of God to tell us that, right? Tell us. He goes on here. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul wants to make clear what sin looks like. And so we see this list of sins. Sexual immorality. This is the question of the age. This is the question of the age. And this is the question that will be the marked dividing point in my generation. What is sexual immorality? And and I'm just going to tell you right now that my generation and and I know everybody kind of likes to bash millennials, but I'm a millennial. I understand that. I just want everyone to remember who taught us, okay, before you start bashing us, all right? So that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> we don't have a great track record on sexual immorality as a nation. But my generation is so confused on this. Because on, on one hand, you have held out that The secret to life is radical sexual autonomy. Just that every person has the right to do whatever they want in the bed or outside it or wherever. A friend of mine says that all people really want is pelvic autonomy. That's the question right now. Yet on the other side, on the other side, you have had develop a really strong sense of morality. And in some ways, in a good way, concerning the sort of culture we have right now where sex has ran rampant to the point that we have developed in our universities, among our young people, all around our culture and society, a place where it's not clear what is and isn't rape, where women are being exploited sexually, where people have a hard time understanding why people ought to be allowed to to be trafficked in sex. People are opposed to those things. So much of that is good. But right now we're, we're trying to have one and the other. And it's really hard to have both. And, and this is what I, I want us to understand is the Bible says sexual immorality is a sin. And as Christians, we must be clear that this is the case. We must have what I, what I call steel spines and soft hearts on these issues. But what I'm not saying is that we ought to be the people who are all the time 
calling people horrible names and, and, and all the time being judgmental toward people who are impure sexually because the reality is we have a generation that's, being, that's coming on the scene right now for whom no one will escape unscathed. It would be very rare that people make it through. And, and that the people who are the purest, and I don't mean just literally, but, but what they've seen, what they've heard, people who are the purest, would have been scandalized in previous generations. And so we must be prepared to show grace and yet to be firm on these things. He talks about idolatry. He talks about adultery. He talks about homosexuality. These are all things where Christians must have a comprehensive sex ethic. A a comprehensive view of what it means for a man to be a man and a woman to be a woman. Things that we were able to take for granted in the past. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians all the time need to sit around pining for the days of the 1950s. There was sin then, too. But everybody wants to go back to Mayberry, and everybody forgets that Otis was drunk every night. (laughs) Thievery, greed, drunkenness, reviling, swindling. Brothers and sisters, all of us are on this list. And if we're not on this list in deed, we're on this list in heart. And the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that there's very little differentiation between the two. You see, our tendency is to be offended by a list like this. But we miss the point. We, we, we miss the point when we're just, we go straight to being offended. The point of a list like this is to show us how comprehensive sin is. Sin has impacted every aspect of our lives. The things we think, the things we do. And so there are probably people in the world right now who are perfectly faithful to their wives and yet on the inside are greedy and live it out. Nobody has a corner on the sin market. And and to to that point as well, nobody has a corner on the righteousness market except one man, Lord Jesus Christ. This list is probably a a list of the sins that the Corinthian church was struggling with. And what I I think Paul is doing is he's showing the way that these things are comprehensive and that there's no one sense in which there's one sin that's the worst sin. We must recognize, though, that grace is not cheap and that God's love and that God's grace does not mean that he doesn't take sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. Here's another thing we need to recognize. Second point is this. Sinners need grace. (laughs) Sinners need grace. We've established we're all on the list. And if if later you want to come to me and say, Pastor, I'm not on that list. I'm not on that list. I promise I'll find one you're on in the Bible. (laughs) So y'all just come on and we'll we'll find your list. There's several of them, okay? We'll find it. Here's the reality. Sinners need grace. We're all on the list. What does the Bible say? This is one of the most beautiful sentences in the Scriptures, in my opinion. This first sentence here in verse 11. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. If you struggle in the same ways I struggle, I always say I'm a recovering Pharisee. 
I'm tempted to love the first couple of verses. Mm, I love a good sin list. You know, Pharisees love a sin list. Love them. You've never, you've never met a Pharisee who didn't love a list of sins, I promise. Some of y'all, even as I, you read it out, it's like, man, I'm glad to have a preacher that'll preach on the hard stuff. And so we should be willing to stand for what's right. And yet, such were some of you. See, if you struggle with ways I struggle, we tempt, we're tempted, we tend to love the first half and hate this verse and hate this sentence. Hate the idea that we would be lumped in with those people. And yet that's the point that God is making, is that we're all those people. It's so easy to give in to sanctimony and judgmentalism, but we have to remember that apart from God's grace, this is precisely the categories that we would fit in or that we did find ourselves in. We are here for one reason, and that's God's grace. This sentence ought to give us a view of our own self-righteous selves. One of the things that I am so troubled by, and not just here, but through my whole ministry and in the church as a whole, but I am so troubled by the self-righteousness in the Lord's church. It makes me wonder sometimes. It terrifies me to think that we've got such a rudimentary grasp on the gospel that we thought we could be prideful about our own track record brothers and sisters the first gift the gospel gives us the first gift that grace gives us is the gift of no longer having to prove how good we are that's the point of the cross you don't have to defend yourself anymore. You don't have to, to, you don't have to keep put up airs anymore. You, you don't have to, you don't have to uh, uh, demonstrate how good and how proper and how holy you are anymore. That's all been demonstrated at the cross simultaneously. It's been demonstrated, first of all, that you're a despicable sinner for whom Jesus had to die. But second of all, it's been demonstrated that you're loved of God because you have been suffered for and died for on the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ and He raised from the dead. And at that moment, you then, when you put your faith in Him, receive His perfect righteousness. We don't have anything to prove. The worst thing and the best thing that could ever be said about you has already been said if you're in Christ. We are here for one reason. And that's God's grace. And not only does that impact our view of our self-righteous selves, but it also impacts our view of the sinners outside here. Recognizing that we all need God's grace. So often we think we're going to go out there and clean those people up. That's how we talk about evangelism a lot. Y'all seen how bad things are? We've got to go out there and clean them up. That's true. The gospel will clean them up. We don't go share the gospel because we don't like how people are acting. We go share the gospel because Jesus is glorious and he's told us to go share the gospel. That leads us to our last point. A simple point. It's good news. God saves sinners. God saves 
sinners. God takes sin seriously. Sinners need grace. And God saves sinners. What does the Bible say? Verse 11. Such were some of you, but, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And this is precisely why the Bible can say, such were some of you. You used to be like that, but you're not anymore. It's not because pagans just suddenly thought, you know, this paganing isn't going as well as I thought it would, so I better go find myself a nice white clapboard church to attend. Find the nearest steeple and go inside. No, it's because they were gripped by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God awoke their hearts and they put their faith and trust in Him. And at that very moment, when a sinner believes in Jesus, they are washed by the blood of Christ. They are sanctified by the power of the Spirit. They are justified before God by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing left to be said about them, but which God has said when He spoke so clearly at Calvary. This is something God has done for you, Christian. And sinner, this is something God can do for you. He saves sinners. Go back to the list. Go back to the list and and read the list. And see how overpowering all these things seem. Uh, uh, Sexual immorality seems inevitable. There's idolatry all around us. People worshiping something besides the living God. Adultery has ravaged our churches in so many ways. Every day it seems like there's another Christian organization or another Christian college or another famous Christian coming out and saying they no longer believe homosexuality is a sin. We worry in our own homes sometimes whether things might be stolen. We fight that greed in our own hearts. Some of you fight every day alcoholism and fight and fight that urge to self-medicate through drunkenness. It seems like our society is broken and all people want to do is revile one another or swindle one another. Sin seems so inevitable. Sin seems so strong. Sin, sin seems so in control. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. Sin seems so powerful. Sin seems so in in control. And such were some of you. Brothers and sisters, if you need evidence of the power of the gospel, all you need is a mirror. All you need is a weekly trip to the Lord's church to see the way that God has taken sinners and redeemed them by His blood. There's nobody who cannot be saved. There's nobody who is beyond God's love and grace. No matter what kind of sin you've been doing, no matter what you've been running from, no matter how you've behaved and acted, there is nobody who's beyond the grace 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, in fact, you were born this way. But praise be unto God, there is another way. And it's accessed by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never, for the first time, put your trust and faith in Jesus, if you'll turn from your sins in repentance and turn to God in faith, through faith in Jesus Christ, I believe you will be saved. God is still in the saving business. God changes lives. And so this morning, I'd love to pray with you if you never trusted Jesus for the first time. Second of all, you may be a Christian. You may say, Pastor, I've, I just need to pray. I, I, I've been living wrong or I, I need God's grace in this moment. I'm struggling today. This altar is open to you. And if you need somebody to pray with you, I'll be right there. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. I'd love to talk to you today about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. And we thank you for his gospel. And God, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together in your name as your people. And God, I pray that you would move this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.